Welcome to A New History of Old San Antonio, Episode 16, The Siege of Bear. I'm Brandon Seal. I'm a city, San Antonio, tonight I'm looking at your lovely life. San Antonio Mayor Angel Navarro was a moderate man, yet the middle, he was discovering, was a perilous place to be. Navarro had tried to remain loyal to the status quo in 1813, but when word of his brother Jose Antonio's revolutionary fervor got back to his superiors, they ran him out of the Spanish army and declared him a traitor. This pushed him into the fold of Mexican Republicans, and he eventually came to share their Federalist constitutional principles, even as he defended traditional institutions such as the church and the state. In 1835, the 25th anniversary of Father Hidalgo's famous grito, he had underwritten the town's 16 de septiembre celebration and used the occasion to counsel patience and restraint to the townsfolk, or vecinos, even as he personally remained leery of the man who had just made himself dictator on an anti-federalist platform, Santa Ana. When Santa Ana's brother-in-law, General Martín Perfecto de Cos, learned of Juan Seguin's plan to ride to the aid of the federalists in Monclova with 25 volunteers in April of 1835, the general attempted to nationalize Seguin's San Antonio unit. He sent the order to Mayor Navarro, who, General Cos continued, would be held personally responsible if Seguin and his troop were allowed to leave the province. Navarro, despite his moderate tendencies, refused General Cosa's order on principle, asserting that, quote, the militia depends exclusively on the authorities of the state and are in no manner subject to the orders of military officers, end quote, while again repeating his loyalty to the Mexican nation and to the constitutional process. General Cos, like his brother-in-law, however, knew San Antonio's history, and in Navarro's nuanced refusal, he heard only a reminder of the town's famous predisposition toward radicalism. Just a few months prior, Coahuilan Federalists had declared San Antonio the capital of their new government in exile before Cos squashed it. And the failure on October 2nd of 100 of General Cross's dragoons to take a cannon from the local militia in Gonzales, Texas, he knew, would only further embolden these San Antonians. And so, General Cross and his 400-man army entered San Antonio on October 9th, 1835, boot heels first. General Cross boarded his officers in the homes of the wealthiest citizens and commandeered the homes of those who weren't present to defend them. He confiscated the vecinos' arms and sequestered them in the Alamo. And he made no effort to distinguish friend from foe operating under the apparent assumption that all San Antonians were suspect. He gathered the town leaders and told them bluntly that if they didn't cooperate, he would have the men sweeping the plazas and the women grinding tortillas for his soldiers, a taunt recalling the fate of San Antonio women in 1813, who were forced to grind tortillas in captivity while their fathers, husbands, and sons were executed outside their prison. And more reinforcements, he told them, were on the way. Mayor Navarro quietly encouraged San Antonians to leave town if they could. He even hid some Anglo-San Antonians at his ranch outside of town to protect them from General Cross's general arrest order for Anglos. Most San Antonians left, and many of them made their way toward Gonzales, Texas, where some 300 men had begun to congregate under Stephen F. Austin. Austin, like Angel Navarro, with whom he was good friends, had long been a voice of moderation in Texas, but a year in a Mexico City jail cell had convinced him that there could be no compromise with Santa Ana's dictatorship. He had now been elected commander of the Federal Army of Texas, which changed its name to the Revolutionary Army of the People, an echo of 1813's Republican Army of the North, and a mark of the province's radicalization in the face of General Cosa's provocations. The Revolutionary Army was a motley lot. Buckskin was the closest thing to a uniform. The older Texans wore boots. The newer arrivals still sported moccasins. Broad-brimmed sombreros shaded some faces, while military headgear from earlier wars adorned others. They supplied their own arms, and all bore a shot pouch, bullet-making materials, and a drinking gourd on their belts. Except for the rifling of their long arms and the size of their bowie knives, they looked not unlike the first San Antonio Revolutionary Army in 1813, which we described in episode 11. And despite Santa Ana's propaganda, this wasn't an army of filibusters and pirates. 
Two-thirds of these men had been in Texas for more than five years, and some had been there their entire lives. Riding out in front of the Revolutionary Army of the People was Juan Seguin and his Tejano Rangers. Recruited primarily from San Antonians and local ranches, you'll recognize their names. Arrocha, Curbelo, Flores, Garza, Navarro, Ruiz, and dozens of others. Their skill on horseback and their knowledge of the countryside made them Austin's most valuable unit, capable of scouting, foraging, and harassing the enemy, and he sent them ahead of the army to recruit what aid he could from San Antonio. On October 12, 1835, the rest of the Revolutionary Army followed west, and by October 27th, they had reached Salado Creek on San Antonio's east side. There, they encountered the first of General Cross's pickets, who gave light resistance before pulling back into town. Then, the Revolutionary Army saw dust on the horizon to the south. They formed up their ragtag battle lines as best they could to brace for an attack. But instead of General Cross's now 650-man army, it was Juan Seguin and a hundred or so Tejanos that rode over the ridge and into the Revolutionary Army's camp, bringing with them vital intelligence about the enemy's strength, position, and supply lines. General Cross knew that Austin was coming, they reported back. Yet rather than ride out to meet them on the plains, he had chosen to make a defensive stand in town. And this gave Seguin an idea. On October 28th, Seguin and 32 of his Tejano Rangers led an additional 60 men commanded by Jim Bowie, another San Antonian, around the south side of town. There, they planned to probe the soft underbelly of the town's defenses, but also to cut off General Cos from his supply line south. General Cos discovered their maneuver, however, and saw his own opportunity. The attacking rebel army had just split its forces. He dispatched almost half of his force, some 275 men, to overwhelm Seguin and Bowie. Confident in their 3-to-1 superiority in numbers, General Cosa's force moved quickly to initiate the battle, yet the rebel position near the old Mission Concepcion was stronger than they realized. Situated in a bend in the San Antonio River which protected their flanks and rear, it forced the Centralists into making a frontal assault. Bowie sent the order down the line that the men should hold their fire until the Centralist force was in deadly range, less than 50 yards or so. Here, the rebels had an additional advantage over the Centralists. Many of the rebels carried the newer, lighter Kentucky rifles, whose rifled bores in the hands of a skilled operator could kill a squirrel at 50 yards. This meant that Bowie's men didn't have to rely upon massed, untrained fire the way that Koss's conscripts did. Rebel riflemen could pick out individual targets to devastating effect. The Centralists opened the Battle of Concepcion with their artillery, but the large pecan trees which grew along the riverbank offered cover to the entrenched rebels. Indeed, the primary result of the Centralist artillery barrage was to rain down ripe pecans on the rebels, who were happy to have the snack while they held their fire. The Centralist infantry began to advance now, to within 200 yards or so, and the first skirmishing units, so-called cazador, or sharpshooter units, began to fire pot shots at the rebels. The rebel riflemen resisted the temptation to fire back, even as the centralists drew now to within 100 yards. Then, the entire centralist line formed up and fired, but their aim was high, in the manner of nervous new recruits. Still, the rebels held their fire. The centralists mounted bayonets and took up the charge now, resolved to finish the battle with cold, hard steel. The bugles called out, the officers pushed their men forward, and the infantry broke into a sprint. Ninety-two rifles fired at once from the riverbank. The centralist front line collapsed as if the ground had been pulled out from beneath them. The men behind them tripped over their wounded comrades, and the rear ranks halted. Then, a second volley smashed into them, to equal effect. The centralist soldiers panicked and lost nerve, and began to backpedal. The officers would have none of it, however, and when they saw the line waver, they ordered the attack taken up again. The second centralist attack fared no better, however, and was beaten back. The centralist commander then ordered a third charge, but the centralist line crumbled beneath the constant and deadly rebel marksmanship. This time, when the centralist line wavered, the rebels came out over the top after them, despite still being outnumbered by a good two to one. The centralists turned to flee, though not before the rebels captured one of their cannon and turned it against its former handlers, while Seguin's rangers mounted up and rode down the stragglers. 
The Central is left behind 50 dead at the Battle of Concepcion, compared to only one dead and one wounded from Seguin and Bowie's party. The Centralist defeat had an immediate effect on General Costa's morale. He refused to believe that a force one-third the size of his own invested his men, and instead assumed that he was now far outnumbered by the Revolutionary Army. He retreated even further back into town, concentrating his forces in the Alamo and around Main Plaza. Austin moved the rest of the Revolutionary Army up into the future Brackenridge Park and called a council of war. More recruits had trickled in from the east, which combined with the now 150 or so local recruits brought in by Seguin, increased the Revolutionary Army's numbers to 600. Austin called for an assault on the town, but the Revolutionary Army's officers refused. Don't forget, this was an all-volunteer army, and democratic to a fault. The army fought when its men wanted to fight, and the prospect of assaulting a well-fortified town, bursting at the seams with artillery and professional soldiers, didn't appeal to them at the moment. Many thought that they could just wait out General Kos. They had cut off his supplies, and reports of his morale problems were already spreading. And many of the San Antonians in the army had families in town, hostages for the moment to General Kos, whom they feared provoking. Austin tried once more in mid-November to inspire the Revolutionary Army into an attack, yet still they declined. On November 24th, less than a month after arriving in San Antonio, Austin resigned his command in frustration and reported back to the provisional Texas government that was forming at a town called Washington on the Brazos. An old Texan named Ed Burleson was elected to replace him. The Revolutionary Army settled into what would become known as the Siege of Bejar, or as the Anglos in the country had begun to pronounce it, Bear. Back in town, Mayor Ancho Navarro did his best to keep San Antonio Vecino safe. He called regularly upon General Costa to advocate for the townspeople, even as their relationship had long since turned bitter. Still, this small act of deference may have helped save the town from the fate that had befallen Zacateca six months before, when that town had defied Santa Ana and been nearly razed to the ground for their impudence. November turned to December. The days grew shorter and the nights grew colder, as the winter of 1835-36 proved to be one of the harshest on record. Supplies were running low in the rebel camp, reports were arriving of an approaching centralist army of reinforcement, and San Antonians like Seguin, Bowie, Def Smith, and old Ben Milam were becoming increasingly worried about the fate of their loved ones still trapped in town. On December 3rd, Ed Burleson, the newly elected commander of the Revolutionary Army, called another council of war. The voices in favor of attacking the city were forceful, but so too were the voices in opposition. Again, the council deadlocked, and deadlock meant inaction. With winter arriving and with concerns now that a dwindling rebel force could be overwhelmed by General Costa's rumored reinforcements, the decision was made to strike camp and pull back the 700-man Revolutionary Army to East Texas. The day before, however, new information had begun to trickle into the rebel camp. On December 2nd, Angel Navarro helped San Antonians John El Colorado Smith and Samuel Maverick escape from the house arrest under which General Costa had placed all Anglos in town. They made their way out to the rebel lines and reported on the sad state of General Costa's army, which had shrunk to only 500 or so effective fighting men. Soldiers were feigning illness and deserting daily, and some units even spoke about deserting en masse to the Revolutionary Army. Yet Smith and Maverick also reported on the deteriorating conditions of the civilians in town, who were short on supplies and in growing danger each day of the abuses incumbent upon any occupied people. And they had it on good authority that General Cost would never surrender, at least not until his relief army arrived, at which point the rebel opportunity would have surely passed. The frontiersmen of the Revolutionary Army lived and died by a democratic code. To date, however, their commitment to democracy had only sunk them into inaction. And that's when one man stepped up and realized that a democratic army didn't require unanimity. It simply required one man with courage. Old Ben Milam was 50 years old in 1835, which in frontier years was indeed ancient. He had spent his life fighting the English, the Spanish, Plains Indians, and pretty well anyone who didn't subscribe to his particular gospel of liberty. We first met him in episode 14 in 1818 when he came to San Antonio to fight for Mexican independence. 
He wound up in prison, but won his release at the same time that Mexico won her independence, and then was awarded an impresario contract to develop a colony around modern-day San Marcos with José Antonio Navarro. When he got crossways with the Saltillo faction of the Coahuila state government, he found himself imprisoned again, but escaped in early 1835 in time to join up with Juan Seguin on his march to Monclova. Ben Milam not only understood the history leading up to this Federalist Revolt of 1835, he had lived it, and he knew what was at stake in San Antonio. On December 4th, he marched into Ed Burleson's tent and laid it out to the commander. Not only was San Antonio important symbolically as the heart of Texas and the cradle of Mexican liberty, but if the Revolutionary Army were to march away now, they would be abandoning their San Antonio allies in a fight that belonged to all of Texas. For the moment, Texas was united in opposition to Santa Ana, and most of the young Mexican Republic was united with them. There would never be a better time than now to strike a blow against tyranny. Caught off guard, Burleson responded that if Milam wanted to storm the town himself, he couldn't stop him, and he was more than welcome to try. With that, Milam marched out of Burleson's tent and whistled for attention. The men milling around the camp snapped their heads around as Milam cried out, Who will go with old Ben Milam into San Antonio? According to some versions, he drew a line in the sand and asked all who would go with him to cross it. More than 300 men answered his call, effectively half of the army whose officers had declined every previous opportunity to attack. Even those who didn't volunteer resolved to stay and support the assault. And so, the next morning, December 5, 1835, at 5 a.m., two rebel columns formed north of San Antonio, with Ben Milam in command. One column, guided by Samuel Maverick and Def Smith, who had lived in San Antonio since 1821 as a Mexican citizen, would attack down Soledad Street. The second column, guided by John El Colorado Smith and Hendrick Arnold, a free black man and son-in-law of Def Smith, would attack down Main Street, paralleling the San Pedro Acequia into town. An artillery barrage directed at the Alamo's north wall opened the assault. The bombardment diverted Centralist attention to the east side of the San Antonio River for a moment while the two columns rushed toward town. Soon, however, cries and shots rang out from Centralist sentries, and the element of surprise was lost. The assault bogged down as it entered the narrow streets of town, crossing modern-day Navarro Street. As night fell on that first day of fighting, Centralist artillery and elite sharpshooters moved into position to confront the attacking columns. That first night, shovels, pickaxes, and knives replaced guns as the attackers began a house-by-house advance, busting through walls and digging trenches between their positions, with progress measured in feet per day. A slow slog of a battle ensued for the next 36 hours. Sleep came sparingly to attackers and defenders alike. The men were covered in mortar dust and smoke, looking more like ghosts than men, their hair singed from powder burns at close range. Many locals had fled the city when the battle started. Many had nowhere to go. Those who remained offered discreet aid to the attackers when they could, bringing them food and water and showing them shortcuts through San Antonio's narrow grid. Yet the horrors of war didn't spare the locals either, whose screams occasionally rang out in the streets when hiding spots were discovered or their walls torn down. Old Ben Milam had led the attack from the outset and continued to lead it now. He was at the forefront of the advance, wielding axe and rifle, and directing men where he could. That night, December 7th, he and several of the other officers had developed a plan to attack the row of houses belonging to the old Zambrano family sitting between Main Plaza and the Veramendi house, which the rebels had just captured. He emerged from the famous front doors of the old Veramendi house and into the sights of a centralist sharpshooter perched in a cypress tree. Milam died instantly from a fatal shot to the head, collapsing into Samuel Maverick's arms. Yet the attack went on, and by dawn of December 8th, the rebels had captured the houses in Zambrano Row. Main Plaza was in sight. Then, on the morning of December 8th, a great cheer went up from the centralist side. The groggy attackers peered out of their holes just long enough to see General Cosa's long-awaited relief army, some 600 men or more, marching through San Antonio. The centralist invaders now outnumbered the rebels some 1,100 to 700. 
Newly confident, General Koss raised a blood-red flag over the Alamo, signaling his intention to offer no quarter to the attackers. He sent out his cavalry to assault the rebel camp, where probably only a couple hundred men remained in reserve from the fighting. Much to General Koss's dismay, however, he was defeated once again by an inferior force, whose marksmanship left the Centralists afraid to even leave the town. Around noon on December 8th, sensing that the Centralists' attention had moved away from Main Plaza, a group of 30 volunteers from New Orleans, the famed New Orleans Grays Unit, rushed the plaza and holed up in the so-called Priest's House at the corner of modern-day Soledad and Commerce Streets. The Centralist units in Main Plaza, which were among General Cosa's most elite units, counterattacked, however, and soon cut off the Grays from the rest of the Revolutionary Army. The situation became dire. Centralists soon arrayed three cannons around the building at just a few yards' range. They fired into the stone walls of the priest's house, which began to crumble on top of them. The Greys threw furniture against the doors and windows, while outside they could see the old Centralist veterans fixing bayonets and preparing to finish them off. Characteristically, the commander of the beleaguered New Orleans Greys put the matter to a vote. The democratic ethos of these men in even life-or-death situations ought to amaze us. And what ought to amaze us even more is what they voted to do. Surrender was the wise option. Notwithstanding General Cross's no-quarter flag, a live prisoner always had a chance to talk his way out of his predicament. A dead defender's fate was final. Yet their surrender would have meant the end of the assault on Bear, the total loss of momentum of the attack, and the failure of the Revolutionary Army to capture San Antonio. To a man, they refused to yield. It's one of the many reminders of the zealotry of the age, of the passion that these men felt for their ideology of personal liberty. Quote, die or do, end quote, they are reported to have said, their assertion to fight to the death. Then the sounds outside the priest's house changed. Gunfire in other parts of the city petered out. Artillery carriages creaked and began to move off to the east. Hesitantly, the rebels came out of their holes. A few brave men rushed forward to reestablish contact with the New Orleans Greys. A pot shot or two rang out from east of the plaza, but no serious resistance was met. After four days and nights of nonstop battle, the Revolutionary Army was surprised to find that they had taken Main Plaza. The Centralists hadn't surrendered, however. General Koss had simply ordered all of his men to pull back to the Alamo to concentrate his forces there. This made the Alamo an even more daunting target to attack, with its three-foot-thick walls, its parapets, and its ample artillery. But the end result was actually far worse for General Koss. 1,100 men crammed into 3.5 acres was no longer an army. It was a mob. And of the 600 reinforcements who had just arrived, only 170 were professional soldiers. The rest were conscripts and convicts. Some didn't even have rifles. And they all soon realized that there wasn't nearly enough food or provisions to support them. The very night that they were ordered into the Alamo, 200 of Koss's men, and disproportionately those with local ties, deserted. When news reached the remaining centralists that the locals had bailed, a panic ensued, and a general mutiny began. General Koss tried to calm his troops, which only aggravated matters. In the commotion, General Koss was actually trampled by his own fleeing men. And my guess is, it was probably at that moment, when he was face down in the dirt, that the diminutive, earring-wearing brother-in-law of Santa Ana realized that he was defeated. At 7 a.m. on December 9th, General Koss sent a messenger out to rebel lines under a white flag. Koss and Ed Burleson and the other Revolutionary Army commanders huddled for the rest of the day in a house in La Villita to negotiate surrender terms. After five days of continuous battle, the Revolutionary Army was in no condition to extract punitive terms, especially given that they were still outnumbered. Miraculously, given the close quarters of much of the fighting, only five rebels, including Ben Milam, had died, with another 30 or so wounded, compared to 150 killed and wounded for General Koss. Yet that presented another problem now, too, for the Revolutionary Army. The idea of a volunteer army hanging around to play guard or nurse to a bunch of prisoners of war was too laughable to even bluff with, and General Koss probably knew this. 
As such, when the Revolutionary Army accepted General Cosa's surrender on December 9th, they offered him rather generous terms. Cosa's entire army was allowed to leave San Antonio intact and under arms, after swearing a solemn oath not to oppose the reestablishment of the Constitution of 1824, whose recent abolition by Santa Ana had provoked the Federalist revolts of 1835. Cosa and many of his men would wait exactly two months before violating that oath. It's worth noting, of course, that the Revolutionary Army took no revenge on their vanquished centralist opponents. They massacred no prisoners and felt no need to even acknowledge General Cosa's silly little no-quarter flag. On the contrary, do you know what actually happened the night of the surrender? Mayor Angel Navarro and the rest of San Antonio threw the mother of all fandangos. Mayor Navarro knew that San Antonians, who were accustomed to nearly nightly fandangos, needed to let out all the fear and suppressed emotions of the siege, and so they got everyone together to celebrate. They even invited the defeated centralists as well, like everyone going to Pizza Hut after a Little League game. There was in truth much to celebrate for Angel Navarro. He felt vindicated in a way. His moderation and diplomacy had kept the townspeople safe, prevented unnecessary bloodshed, and perhaps even contributed to a small victory for his Federalist cause. After following General Cosa's army all the way to the Rio Grande, just to make sure they didn't get lost along the way, Juan Seguin disbanded his ranging company and took office as county judge, in which capacity he oversaw the year-end elections and presided over a mixed revolutionary junta of Tejanos and Anglos, recalling San Antonio's 1813 revolutionary junta. Samuel Maverick, Jesse Badgett, José Francisco Ruiz, and José Antonio Navarro, brother of Mayor Ángel Navarro, were elected to attend a convention called for March 1st at Washington on the Brazos to decide Texas's fate. Because most knew that this wouldn't be the final act in the drama. As long as Santa Ana held the reins of government, he couldn't ignore the blow that San Antonio had just struck to his prestige. Most likely, retribution would, once again, come marching up the old Camino Real. The Revolutionary Army had captured some much-needed provisions from General Cos, including 300 muskets, 11,000 cartridges, and thousands of pounds of gunpowder. More important still was the artillery they had captured, which remained mounted along the walls of the Alamo, which now bristled with cannons, like the quills of a porcupine. But only about 80 rebels remained under arms to celebrate the 1836 New Year in San Antonio. And more than a quarter of these were the New Orleans Greys who had stormed and held the priest's house in Main Plaza. They were all soon put to work repairing the Alamo and preparing it for whatever might come next. Firing platforms, embrasures, and lunettes guarding the gates were constructed. A gap between the Alamo Chapel and the southeast corner of the compound was reinforced with a palisade. And they focused particular attention on the now-crumbling North Wall, which had borne the brunt of the Revolutionary Army's diversionary barrage at the beginning of the Siege of Bear. Back in East Texas, many questioned the wisdom of trying to hold San Antonio at all. The self-declared provisional government of Texas kept sending officers to abandon the town. Yet none of these officers could bring themselves to do it. On February 3rd, William Barrett Travis was sent to San Antonio with orders to withdraw its men and provisions to East Texas. Famously, he wouldn't. Earlier in January, Jim Bowie had been sent back to San Antonio by the East Texas government with similar orders. Famously, he wouldn't either. Each of these men appreciated the strategic significance of the town, no less so than Santa Ana, and realized that whoever held San Antonio would ultimately hold Texas. And that's not hyperbole. A centralist army stationed in San Antonio would have made impossible any pretensions East Texas had towards safety. As Bowie would state in a letter to Sam Houston, quote, the salvation of Texas depends in great measure on keeping Bear out of the hands of the enemy. It serves as the frontier picket guard, and if it were in the possession of Santa Ana, there is no stronghold from which to repel him in his march to the Sabine. End quote. And it wasn't just the military value of the town that these commanders came to appreciate. The men who were actually from San Antonio understood what was owed San Antonians. These were the men who had been fighting this war not just for five months, but for 25 years. 
According to the interim commander of the Alamo, more than 80% of San Antonians had or would support their cause. And as a different revolutionary had said two generations before, on the eastern end of the continent, they must all now hang together, or surely, they would all hang separately. Thank you for listening. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher and subscribe and leave us a review. Because if everyone who listened to this podcast left a review on iTunes or Stitcher, it would launch San Antonio's story to the top of the charts. For more information and old episodes, you can visit our website at brandonseal.com. Editing for this episode was provided by Susana Canseco. Sound engineering was performed by Stephen Bennett. A special thanks to my friend, Noel McKay, for letting us use his song, Mi San Antonio. If you're interested in learning more about this particular moment in San Antonio's history, I recommend you go read Professor De La Teja's compilation of Juan Seguin's writings, published as A Revolution Remembered, The Memoirs and Selected Correspondence of Juan N. Seguin. Seguin is everywhere during this period, and indeed, is probably as responsible as any single person for setting in motion General Cross's march to Texas in 1835, and of course everything that would follow, in which he'll also figure prominently. The Texas Revolution, in short, is the story of Juan Seguin. And if you're looking for a place to visit, you can actually go see the house where General Cross surrendered to the Revolutionary Army on December 9th, 1835, in La Villita. Go check it out.